and the WPA was just an enormous program. And so this is the first time that artists are paid to go to work. Here at the BMA, there have been two previous shows, but this is the first one that focuses on the women printmakers. And mainly that's because it was a story that hadn't been told. On today's show, which originally aired on the Labor Heritage Power Hour radio show, Virginia Anderson, curator of American art at the Baltimore Museum of Art, walks us through the BMA's brand new exhibit, Artwork, Women Printmakers of the WPA, which explores the importance of women artists, many of whom are unknown today, yet who captured the human faces of industrial and domestic labor and its inherent racial, gendered, and class inequities while they use their art to support important reforms led by the era's growing communist and socialist movements. In the cotton mill towns where I worked, as an organizer for the Textile Workers Union of America, back in the 1970s, Bill Hands would say, I'm working hoot owl, or I'm working graveyard. Singer-songwriter Cy Khan finds poetry in the many names for the third shift, that overnight work period that's the bane of existence for so many. And on Labor History in Two, the year was 1936. That was the day that workers at the General Motors plant in Atlanta, Georgia, participated in a sit-down strike. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. Let's begin with my interview with Virginia Anderson, the Baltimore Museum of Art's Curator of American Art, at the exhibit, Artwork, Women Printmakers of the WPA. You'll also hear my wife, artist and former printmaker, Lisa Ray Garlock. So before we, before we go around and look at the arts, tell me about the concept of, of this uh, collection or this ex- exhibition. So the WPA was the Works Progress Administration, and this was an enormous program that was started by Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, and his you know team in uh, 1933. And this was in response to the 1929 economic crash, the Great Depression, and the fact that so many Americans um, needed work, needed employment, needed an income. And the WPA was just an enormous program that put people to work across all sectors. So you had um, urban infrastructure. Um, You also had, in this case, artistic production. And so this is the first time that artists are paid to go to work. And part of this, this, you know, you might be familiar with murals and post offices and libraries. Um, In this case, there were also print studios that were formed in major cities across the United States. Um, And artists were paid a salary, a daily salary, to come to work and make prints. Um, And basically, as a result of this program, which ran from about 1935 to 1942, they produced 240,000 prints. And at the, when the program was disbanded in 42, 43, 
these were prints that had been produced with taxpayer money. So you can't sell them, they're a public good. The whole point of the project is that art is a public good. And so what, they, what the government did um, is that they divided up those 240,000 prints and they sent them to museums, libraries, universities, uh, public institutions across the country. The Baltimore Museum of Art received an allotment of close to 1,000 prints. Uh, and those have been here since 1943 on technically long-term loan from the federal government. Has there ever been an exhibition of, of these before? Here at the BMA, there have been two previous shows, um, but this is the first one that focuses on the women printmakers. And mainly that's because it was a story that hadn't been told. So what was the story, the untold story that you wanted to bring up? It's sort of multifold. Um, the overall theme that we wanted to draw out was this concept of labor, and that's where the title of the exhibition comes from, Art Slash Work, uh, Women Printmakers of the WPA, because so many of these pieces, A, were about this idea of work um, during this era. They were documenting uh, their lives. They were documenting the cities around them. They were documenting um, you know, uh, miners working. They were documenting each other working in the studio, as you'll see. Um, and so really it was this concept of labor and work that we wanted to foreground. Specifically also, in, in zooming in on the production of the women artists, we really wanted to draw out the particular circumstances that they faced. Um, when the WPA was hiring artists, women artists were paid $3 a day for their work. Male artists were paid $5 a day. So there was already a kind of, there was a kind of ingrained sexism um, also, if you were part of a married couple and your spouse was working for one part of the WPA, you could not also work for the WPA. You know, it was a sort of double dipping, even if you desperately needed the money. So many artists would change their names and they would work under an alias. Maybe it was a maiden name, maybe it was a relative's name. Um, and that adds to the challenge that we have in identifying some of these artists. We know who most of them are, but there are still a couple in this exhibition that we cannot find death dates and locations for. Um, so, you know, there are singular challenges that came about for women artists that weren't always present for men artists. These are all prints. They're lithographs, they're woodcuts, they're etchings. Yes. Were, were women working in like a uh, collective uh, studio, right? So these? all of these, all of these workers were working in a collective studio, in collective studios, I should say, yeah, because they the were country, in cities right. around the country. So you would come to the print studio and you would be there all day. Mm -hmm. And as you might imagine, this was a fantastic opportunity. And you had, you know, men artists, male identifying artists, and female identifying artists working together in these um, studios. But if you, let's say, you were an artist but you'd never had the opportunity to make prints. Well, lo and behold, right, you could get training, you could learn technique, you could learn from your fellow artists. And so this was also where innovations in technique and composition and style were taking place as the artists learned from each other and worked together. Well, I'm amazed because I was a printmaker uh -huh. in undergrad. That was my, my major. And um, so the lithographs, those are stones. They're yes. heavy stones. There's presses involved. I mean, it's, it's almost industrial as a 
if it, if it were, you know, not an art form. Um, so, and then the etching with the acid and the, and the tools and all of that, I'm just like blown away that, um, that this was a project then. I just didn't know about it. It is such a great point. And it's true. I think, you know, there's another aspect to this exhibition, which of course is the technique. I mean, we're standing here in front of this print by Claire Malmore. Um, and it's called Transportation. And as you look at it, you see a gigantic hand. It's kind of a surrealist composition, right? You've got an urban cityscape dominated by this singular gigantic hand. Um, and what you're seeing is the subway, which is being turned from an elevated train into an underground train, um, sweeping across that hand and going into a tunnel. Uh, and then a building that you know might be the Empire uh, um, center, you know, behind it. But that hand and the juxtaposition of that with the cityscape gives you a sense of this moment of dramatic creation. But technically, if you look at it, right, the shading is unbelievable. Um, and you can really see the grain uh, of this lithograph. You know, she would be working with a crayon. So essentially, it's almost like a kind of wax resist process. Um, and you can see the shading. You can sometimes even see the grain of the stone mm -hmm. if you look up close. Um, and so that technique of using the shading to create this visually dramatic piece is really outstanding. Mm. Can you talk about the, the themes that you found? So the exhibition is divided into five themes. Um, this first section that we're standing in is called A Changing World, and it documents the dramatic social changes and urbanization and labor changes that were happening during this time. Um, and so over here, we have a group of prints that are really focused on the subway, on depictions of the city, um, on, you know, people going to work, on, we have one print um, by M. Lois Murphy titled Election Night. So kind of the urban activity, and this is the era in which by 1920, the majority of Americans are for the first time ever living in cities. So in this era of the 1930s, this is still fairly new. Um, and so they were documenting the dramatic growth of cities. Most of these artists are people that if you are a specialist in the field, you still might have only heard of a few of them. And uh, we're hoping with one of the goals of this exhibition is to introduce these names into the canon um, and to really get more scholars and more curators you know, aware of what they have in their collections, aware of the possibilities of research. Um, and give them a chance to learn more about some of these artists. So one of the arguments that we're making with this exhibition is that the social themes and the issues that these artists were grappling with are highly relevant today, right? You think? <laughs> Climate change, you know, uh, cities, growth, um, labor. If you think about the strikes we've all been, you know, hearing and reading about this year uh, that have impacted our lives and the lives of many Americans. Uh, you know, fair wages, work weeks, et cetera, right? Are we working from home? Are we working remotely? Do we have to be on site? All of these attentions and these questions around labor are happening with incredible density today. Um, and so we really, with each section text, um, included a little timeline that connects uh, historical events from the era in which these prints were produced to issues happening today, to kind of bring that point home. So um, I can turn maybe a little bit to this particular print, um, with, which was made by uh, M. Lois Murphy. She's one of the artists about whom we know very little. Uh, we haven't been able to find so far a location um, where she died. 
And if you look, um, you know, we've searched other museum websites, we've searched genealogy websites, uh, so there's more research to be done. Um, but this print in particular, it's a wood engraving, which as a technique, right, you're working with a very fine metal tool and you're carving into um, the blunt end of a piece of wood, typically. So that's the grain, not, not the side where you see the grain, but the harder end. So technically, it's very challenging. Um, and it's very challenging to do with such finesse. And you can see how she's really playing the positive and the negative of where the, the white, where she carved out the wood, against the absolute black, uh, where the ink was printed, to create this very dramatic scene um, of an outdoor crowd gathering, presumably in the um, you know, after moments of an election. And uh, you've got the Klieg lights blaring, you've got the crowd, some people are celebrating, some people, there's a woman in the foreground with a fur collar who's looking out, and she might not be too pleased by the result of the election. Um, and uh, other people are, are celebratory and very happy and excited. Um, so it's a fascinating kind of document, again, of a particular moment um, in the mid-30s. This is one of my favorite walls. <laughs> this is um, from our section titled Labor Seen and Unseen. And this is a group of prints um, that depicts and really focuses on the theme of mining. Uh, and they're both graphically outstanding and very direct in terms of their content. Um, and these artists, um, in this case, uh, Elizabeth Olds is one of the artists, Blanche Grahams, um, Yolan Bettenheim, uh, they were researching mining. They went to Pennsylvania and they visited coal mining towns and mines. And they, you know, saw the conditions under which uh, miners were working and the families were living. And they documented that in these prints. They then went back to these federally funded print studios um, and documented these conditions. And so in this top image, for example, um, you see a miner's head, and it's, um, you know, graphically just close in, a zoom in on this face. You see the light that he has um, shining, you know, over his eyes. His eyes themselves are just glowing out. It's eerie, right? A very powerful print, uh, really beautifully done. And it captures in his expression just this sense of exhaustion and abandonment and despair, um, that really, I think, epitomizes what miners were going through at that time. And this is why you had coal strikes and mining strikes during the era. We did some research and found that, um, that miners working at that time could be paid on an annual basis the equivalent of $10,000 today. And this is for work for which they were risking their lives and certainly their health, right? Um, so thinking about those questions again, uh, it really brings home the point, and she's using the, the graphic quality of her print to really bring that home. Uh, as a person in the art museum world, to see this kind of, of work, what, what does that evoke for you? To me, it really evokes um, the radical aspect of these artists' project, uh, that they were using federally funded um, print studios, equipment, paper, inks, etc., to um, draw attention to issues of labor and exploitation. This is a bold, brave move, right? And they were doing that during this time. Um, 
very successfully, you know, in really just incredibly beautiful prints. So at the bottom, do you want to talk about this one? Because this is a very strong image as well. And it, it contrasts, obviously, with the one above it. Yep. Um, yes, it does. So what we're looking at is a print by Elizabeth Olds, and it's titled Miners. She's signed and dated it to 1937. And she's depicting here um, three male miners, each again wearing a helmet with a headlamp. Um, and sort of a range of different expressions. And what she's suggesting through this depiction um, is actually perhaps uh, the racial integration of mining, right? Um, and she's, in doing so, we might also say implicitly supporting many of these artists who are active socialists, active members of the Communist Party. And at that time, the Communist International was drawing a lot of attention also to... Um, you know, racial disparities in labor. And so part of their mandate was to really draw, draw attention and support for um, black laborers. And she's showing you here an interracial group of minors. And in doing so, she's expressing her support for this kind of politics and this kind of policy um, and wanting to bring it home. This particular one, uh, I think does a, it shows there's a despair and the hard work. This is almost ennobling, don't you think? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think they have these very resolute expressions. Um, and there's also a sense of um, coherence and teamwork, right? Mm -hmm. We're in this mm -hmm. together because if you look at the figures, it's kind of hard to see where one leaves off and the other one begins. Uh, and she's got them so close together that she's really um, presenting them as a united front. So these, these two you just talked about are yeah. people, yes. but the other two depict, are not. Depict the industry itself, right? So the one on the far right is titled Design Steel. Um, and again, just to bring you up close to it as um, an etching, the quality of the line work, you really have to get up close to see this and to see the variation within that form, because from a distance it just reads as, as monolithic, right? Um, and she's juxtaposed um, this with a background. And we also provided magnifying glasses, I would point out, <laughs> um, that for those of us whose eyes might need it, uh, might, might appreciate that support. Um, if you look at the background, she's juxtaposed outlines of houses with fields of crosses. Yes. Ooh, yes. right? So it seems to be suggesting that life and death are side by side in a mining town. Right, and that you have the processing of the ore, this smelting, this you know monolith of industry in the foreground, but in the background, when you look closely, you see the human impact and the human toll. You're listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour on WPFW 89.3 FM, your station for jazz and justice. Before concluding our tour of the Baltimore Museum of Art's new exhibit, artwork, women printmakers of the WPA, here's Labor History in Two from November 14th, 1938. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1938. That was the day that the National Federation of Telephone Workers was founded in New Orleans, Louisiana. Today, the union is known as the Communication Workers of America and represents 700,000 workers in a wide range of communication fields. Attempts to organize the telephone industry began as early as 1910 by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. By the end of the decade, the 
IBEW had more than 200 telephone unions. Growth in the number of union members in the telephone industry was greatly impeded due to World War I. During the war, President Woodrow Wilson issued an order to, quote, hereby take possession and assume control and supervision of each and every telegraph and telephone system and every part thereof within the jurisdiction of the United States. He placed control of the industry under the authority of the Postmaster General. After the war ended, telephone companies increasingly installed company unions as a way to control their workers' organizing efforts. Their aim was to stave off unionism from outside organizations. Nearly all of the IBEW locals lost their membership to company unions. But when Congress passed the Wagner Act in 1935, a new surge of independent unionism began in the telephone industry. In 1938, 31 organizations joined together in New Orleans to form the National Federation of Telephone Workers. It was a loose association of locally independent unions. But by 1947, it became clear that the union would have to form a strong national presence to negotiate with the nationwide companies. And the Communication Workers of America was born. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Back now with the rest of our tour of the Baltimore Museum of Art's new exhibit, Artwork, Women Printmakers of the WPA, with Virginia Anderson, the BMA's Curator of American Art. I just have to make you look at this okay. one, though, real quick. You're, you're um, <laughs> this is a print by Ida Abelman, and it's titled My Father Reminisces. Um, and it's, again, a fantastic image that just brings together in, um, you know, a very sort of uh, social graphic way um, images of large ships arriving with, from, you know, uh, the four other countries with immigrants um, disembarking and feeling initially, right, a sense of maybe celebration and yay, we've arrived. But then you have this gigantic sewing machine in the foreground with oppressed, an oppressed figure and oppressed workers underneath. And then on the far right, kind of these bosses with cigars and bow ties. Um, and in the top right-hand corner next to an image of the Statue of Liberty, you have these kind of posters um, or um, you know, boards uh, that have mottos like the WPA must go on, suffrage for women, abolish child labor, um, shirtwaist makers strike. And so it really depicts, um, and, the, and fight for unionism uh, with specific dates for some of those. Um, it really depicts in a way, I think, her father's experiences and her family's experiences of arriving in the United States and experiencing some of this labor oppression. And if you think about the Triangle Shirtwaist fire, right, and that tragedy in which 200 women or so um, lost their lives, um, they, she's very directly commenting on the, that history and the need for reform and that reform must continue. I love this piece. I mean, you, as you see, you got you know the things that smashed the sweatshop and and reefer maker strike, nineteen oh seven, I think. But I'm just thinking, if you were to put a piece of artwork today that looked like this in a museum paid by tax dollars, mm. um, there'd be a little different reaction, right? But would you? I mean, I think part of the point of this show is that this was a singular moment in history where the federal government funded this. Um, we track a little bit the evolution through the founding of the NEH and the NEA, and we might think about you know, support that is offered indirectly. 
but never again have we seen this kind of direct support from the federal government for artists' work. Um, and so I think, and at times, right, we've all been aware of kind of the culture wars of the 1980s and censorship that came about through the use of, you know, pulling of federal funds, right? Um, and so this really was, I think, a very singular moment. I love that one. I, I, that's, that's Isn't that I amazing? That you have, I was like, you've got to see yes. that. Yeah. Of all people, I think you would appreciate that one. I love it. Um, so we have a section here on artistic labor, and this is what we were talking about earlier, where you had artists working side by side with each other and forming communities. And we've traced some of those communities here. So on the right, we're, we're looking at um, a lithograph, and it depicts uh, an, an artist, Chichen Chung Li, who um, was a Chinese immigrant born in Guangdong province in China, who had come to the States. And this was in an era where you had a lot of anti-Asian legislation, you know, racist policies, right? And here he's being depicted by his fellow artist, Pauline Vinson. And you can see that he's using, you know, a brush in a traditional kind of technique um, to create an image. Uh, with color, you know, a set of colored pencils next to him, and in the background you see another artist working. Um, and so this is, again, a kind of radical depiction of an artist who is among the most vulnerable, who's being supported by this program, right? This is somebody who has faced um, oppression and legislation and bias, uh, who's, uh, you know, the, the need for support from this program is so important and she's documenting him in this very dignified manner. He's wearing a bow tie and a long sleeve shirt and a vest um, with you know, sort of beatific expression creating his art. Um, and so to document that is just so important and so beautifully done here. Was there any kind of direction or guidance or limitations put on subject matter for these shops? Not that we know of. Hmm. And we've really, um, you know, again, uh, noted the radical nature of some of the prints and the very progressive nature of some of the prints. Um, so we, we don't have a sense that there was a lot of um, attention being paid. <laughs> like, take your money and... <laughs> and there was, thankfully, there was also a lot of artistic experimentation. So we also have some artists um, like Cleo oh. Van Buskirk here who are working abstractly. And this is an era, 19, this uh, color screen print was produced in 1940. This is an era in which abstraction is still very contentious in the United States, um, but artists were experimenting with abstraction. And here you see this kind of, you know, bio, what we would call maybe biomorphic surrealism. These are very organic looking curvy forms set against um, a colored background and uh, working in color screen print, which is itself a new technology. So this was also a time in which artists were learning new techniques like screen, screen printing from each other. Wow. So um, this section is on uh, leisure and entertainment, really. And this was the fact that we have a show that is so focused on labor. And the counterpoint to labor, maybe, is relaxation. And you get to take a day off. This is the era of the 40-hour work week legislation, right? policies being passed to support American workers. Um, and so how would you spend your free time? Um, this section also draws attention to the labor of not just visual artists, but we had at the same time the Federal Theater Project and the Federal Music Project. Um, and so we have uh, examples um, by Kira Markham that document plays that were being produced. Uh, we have a print here um, by Leah Balsham 
which depicts, um, it's called Yum Yum Mikado, and it's a reference to the Gilbert and Sullivan musical, The Mikado. There was a swing version put on by the Federal Theater Project in Chicago. And it's also very important to note that many of these projects were racially segregated. And so you had sections and opportunities that were available to black workers and sections and opportunities that were available to white workers. So she's depicting uh, an actress, Gladys Boucre, in this role of Yum Yum in the Mikado. Um, the central image, which you noted, is also by Elizabeth Olds, whose print of the three minors we looked at earlier. Um, and this uh, is a woodcut that depicts Harlem dancers. And it's really a lively, engaging scene. Um, and you can see here how she's layering the different colors to create this image. So you would do one pass through the press for yellow, one pass for blue, one pass for red, one pass for black. Um, and that's how she's producing all of these different tones and creating this very kind of lively and dynamic scene of people dancing. So how was it for you to sort of unearth these treasures? It was fantastic. I mean, this is, I think, as with every uh, kind of career or job, we spend most of our time in meetings and answering emails. But when we have the opportunities for exhibitions like this to do the deep dive, to spend time with colleagues, looking at these prints and seeing them, you know, in our case for the first time, um, having the opportunity to uh, really study them, get to know the artists, get to know the subjects, do some of this in-depth research. Um, it's a dream come true. I mean, this is, you know, it's just so much fun. It's so fantastic. And this is the kind of canon building work, I want to say, what, which means we, we know some artists, right? There are some artists that everybody can think of from the 20th century. Jackson Pollock, right? Um, but what we really want to do here at the BMA and with exhibitions like this is to expand the canon. And we want more of these names to become household names. We want more of these artists to be recognized for the work that they were doing. So for us to have the opportunity to study them and look at them, it's a delight, I can tell you. And, and what do you, in, in working with them, how do you think these images that are almost 100 years old, how do they speak to, to us today? I think in so many ways. I mean, again, across all of these themes, um, we've really tried to make connections to the present moment. What's surprising sometimes, I think you would agree, is how modern some of these feel, right? You could be coming across some of these scenes uh, today. I mean, this is uh, Washington Square Park in New York City. Um, it's a print by Mildred Williams titled Washington Square. And it's just folks you know, walking through the park, kids playing, people chatting. Uh, you know, you see this anywhere. Um, and the other kind of connection that we wanted to make with the show, too, is that if you've ridden a subway, if you've, you know, visited Druid Hill Park in Baltimore, if you've, uh, you know, worked a 40-hour work week or considered yourself an artist, the themes and the issues of this show affect you, right? And then gets the other thought, started with where you started in terms of wanting to, to look specifically at women. Can you contrast then and now? It's funny, I was just uh, rereading re an essay um, by, there's a contemporary artist named Carol A. Schneemann, and uh, she's written an essay called Women in the Year 2000, and she wrote the essay in 1977. And she's sort of projecting forward what it will be like to be a woman artist. And she says, you will no longer be a provisional guest at the banquet of life. 
So when we think about that and we think about the, you know, the systemic oppression and the challenges that these women artists faced, where they couldn't get education, they couldn't get access to gallery representation, they couldn't sell their works, they were rarely exhibited in museums. Uh, it's wonderful to look at contemporary artists working today and see that the field has equalized to the degree that it has. We all know it's not perfect. There's always more to be done, and we can talk about the ways that, there are more, that there's more to be done, but we can also see that we have indeed made some progress. So this is um, a lithograph by Jean Finlayson Holmes, um, who was living in San Francisco, and indeed you can see kind of the mountains and the Golden Gate Bridge. But what you're seeing in the foreground is a scene of a woman giving birth in a hospital. And she's having this kind of out-of-body, transformative experience, a vision in a way, right, of her soul maybe um, reaching up into the heavens. And we might think of this as the effect of the ether, the effect of child labor, childbirth, um, and the, the incredible transformative experience um, that that is. Uh, and she's depicted that here in this kind of surrealist scene. And we also wanted to point out that um, ether and chloroform and labor, you know, pain relief for women giving birth, um, and that giving birth in hospitals was still new at this point in time. And what you start to see in this era from 1900 to 1950 is a plummeting in maternal mortality rates, which is fantastic. We've charted that in our timeline on labor. And then that dives to its lowest point in the United States in the early 1990s, and it has since been creeping back up, um, especially with racial disparities between black mothers and white mothers. Um, so this print really is just a fantastic uh, you know, moment to consider the experience of a woman giving birth and to consider that as labor and the work that it was and the unpaid domestic work of women, we also highlight in the two prints that are adjacent to it. Nicely done. So this section is um, titled Anti-Fascism, the Spanish Civil War. And as I mentioned, it's a kind of addendum to our, an important addendum to our exhibition. Um, we differentiate it in that we allowed the work of Joseph Vogel, who was a male artist working during this time. We wanted to include two of his pieces because they're so powerful, they're so well done. Um, this is about the Spanish Civil War, which isn't really taught in American history courses. Um, in part, we argue, because the United States was on the wrong side. Um, this was when, uh, you know, Francisco Franco comes to power and there's a military coup um, and the resulting civil war um, that pits uh, the democratically elec elected Spanish Republic against this military fascist dictator, um, and the United States chose to remain neutral while, as did many other countries, kind of following their example. But uh, the Communist International, again, um, really brought together workers from around the world, from all, all you know, continents where people live. Um, they sent people um, to come and fight on behalf of the Democratic Republic. Um, you did have American volunteers who, without the permission of their government, deliberately you know, went and fought. Um, they also worked as medical administrators, as doctors, um, in support of the effort. And artists went, um, that was, we, we had um, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, I should point out, 
was um, the, the name of the, of the brigade um, of Americans who, who joined up. Um, there were direct links made by artists who participated, who went, who witnessed these atrocities. You know, we might think about Picasso's uh, Guernica, for example, as the most famous work of art that comes out of this um, horrific conflict in which, you know, you have a government bombing its own citizens. Um, but Americans who went, uh, came back and produced prints based on their experiences through the WPA prints and presses. Um, again, a radical note that they are using federal um, prints to print uh, presses to produce these um, very political images. Um, so if you take a look at some of these, you can see uh, this is a work titled Jewish Refugees by Florence Kent. And uh, there were direct links being made to the oppression of a military dictatorship in, in Spain and an awareness that this rise of fascism was happening simultaneously in other countries. And so what are the implications? What are the links? Where is this going to take us? Was something um, that these artists were very aware of. Many of them, many of the Americans who went and fought or participated um, were Jewish. And uh, also there were black um, soldiers who participated um, and medical administrators and workers. Um, uh, Oscar Hunter, who's depicted in the color woodcut at right, uh, was one. Um, Langston Hughes, who was then writing for the Baltimore Afro-American, went and also witnessed and documented the Civil War. And he drew the line very explicitly when he said, give Franco a hood and he could be a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm. So there was literally an awareness of this oppression and what happens when you empower people who will, you know, um, wound uh, and hurt and kill their own citizens. How did this fit into the women printmakers? So we came across these images as part of our research and were aware that this was a very important sub-theme. And my co-curator, Robin Joyce, this is especially a subject that he's done extensive research into, um, and we really wanted to draw awareness again. It connects so well to the work that we're doing in the main central part of the exhibition and thinking about work and labor um, and in connecting these historical moments to the present. Well, that was my follow-up question is what, uh, and I think it's obvious, but spell it out for us. What's the resonance for today? Oof. <laughs> Didn't think you were getting easy questions. Oh, I know. So many, so many points to make. I mean, we chart here. Let's, you, let's look at our timeline. So we note as an early point in the timeline that in 1933, there was the formation of the Silver Legion of America, which was a pro-Nazi paramilitary organization in the United States. Um, we have... Uh, as a note on the timeline, May of 2023, when a federal jury uh, found members of the neo-fascist paramilitary group, the Proud, Proud Boys, guilty of conspiracy for the U.S. Capitol attack January 6th of 2021. So in our timeline, it's there. When we think about global events and global wars, I mean, too many to, too many to mention, but certainly, you know, the Ukraine... Uh, the Israeli-Gaza situation all come to mind. Having spent all this time really doing this deep dive um, and focusing on women artists in this particular time period, um, pulling back, what, what, are, what are some kind of things that you are reflecting on at this point? Mm -hmm. um, in a way, I'm reflecting on the fact that 100 years is not a long time, mm. right? I mean... 
the older you get, the truer that is. <laughs> uh, but works that were made 90 years ago, it could have been made yesterday. Um, you know, these images could be lifted from the front pages of the New York Times. Um, the social um, challenges that workers in America face are still incredibly relevant, um, that we have, infra that we I mean, need infrastructure and social support um, to uh, provide for our citizens is necessary. And we see here, we see here manifestly the benefit of projects like this. We see the power to create, uh, the power to produce, the power to support one's family, uh, and the good that can come out of that. Are there things that, that you think that women artists um, are, are see, see differently or notice? I, I would say that it's true for every artist that you, you represent through your chosen media um, the subjects that are close to you, mm. right? And you're from your, drawing from your own experience, whether you're a writer, whether you're a visual artist, whether you're a performer, you draw from your own experiences. And if you're a woman living in the 1930s and early 1940s, you are having different experiences than your male counterparts, and you are seeing the world differently. Um, you know, you might have uh, family experiences that you're drawing on. You might be more attuned to the domestic labor that we talked about um, and the unfairness of some of these social circumstances. Uh, and you're coming together here in, through these opportunities um, to create a community to collaborate in a way that hasn't been available to you before. Um, so I think the singularity of that opportunity might be newer and more revelatory for women artists than it was for men who perhaps had had broader abilities to uh, rent and share studio spaces, to work together in academic programs, um, to exhibit together in galleries that focused on work by men artists because that's what everybody did because that's what you could sell. Um, and so I think having that collaboration and that sense of community, um, being able to create a network, and we all know how important professional networks are, this was a moment in which that was offered to women artists. The other thing I would say too, right, is that because they're prints, they're not singular. They're created in right. multiples, right? right? So printmaking has always been a great way to disperse your art and your ideas, right? It is art for the masses, literally. You produce this. At times, these are, um, these are not um, additioned. So they could make as many as they could make, as many as they wanted to. Um, and they could then be easily dispersed. So one of the analogies that we've um, sort of joked about is that in a way, this was the social media of its time. Mm -hmm. You want to draw attention to an issue? You can create a hundred works of art that depict this image that will circulate and that multiple people will see. So it's available to a wider audience. Um, it is a more equitable art form in that way. Um, the other thing is that the artists were allowed to keep three copies of every print that they made. Um, and so sometimes you do find these kind of circulating on the market uh, when they survived. Um, we've noted that for some of the artists, uh, if there wasn't a descendant, if there wasn't an heir, uh, that this is why we don't know who they are sometimes, right? And if you don't have, if you're an artist for whom this was your opportunity, and then in 1942, too, you no longer had access to the studio and you had to find employment elsewhere, um, suddenly your ability to produce art was much more limited. Many of these artists stopped. 
as a labor person, you know, I'm reminded of Ralph Fasnella, who, you know, he, he didn't want his art to be in museums or, or in the house of a collector. He wanted it to be in union halls and out mm-hmm. in public. Like many museums, we now have um, a print study center, and you can go online through our website, and you can reserve it. You can request to see certain works. You can search our collection online. Oh. We've done some very important cataloging work to make these uh, works available through our website. And you can go online and you can request a time to come in and you know submit a list of here are some things I'd like to see. And you can make an appointment to do that. Really public cool. museum, public collection. I would note the technical um, and visual aspects of these prints, the more that we look at them, the more that we have the opportunity, even as the curators, to look at them, the more we appreciate how beautiful they are and the skill and the technique Uh, that went into each of these. We looked at them unframed in our print study room before the show, and then once they were matted and framed and we've hung them on the wall with the lighting, it's, it's every curator's dream when the work looks as spectacular as these do. So definitely use the magnifying glasses. Use the magnifying glasses, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Virginia Anderson, the BMA's Curator of American Art, the exhibit, is artwork women printmakers of the wpa you can check it out during regular museum hours artbma.org by the way workers at the bma overwhelmingly voted to form a union last year with ASME council 67 becoming the first such institution in maryland's largest city to have one wall-to-wall union covering all employees here's singer-songwriter sai khan with our final segment. Nighthawks of the world unite. Here's my answer to someone who asked me, Sai, what are you doing awake at this time of night? Which of course required their being awake at the same time of night and therefore subject to the same question. The answer is, this is such a nice way to start my night shift, my third shift. What down here in the south and maybe up where you are, we also call graveyard shift and hoodow shift. Aren't those lovely? In the cotton mill towns where I worked as an organizer for the Textile Workers Union of America, back in the 1970s, Bill Hands would say, I'm working hoodow or I'm working graveyard. The great bluegrass and jazz acoustic bass player, band leader, Missy Reagans, told me her dad worked that shift for 30 years. In their part of West Virginia, they called it cat eye. I found that mysterious and beautiful. I find that mysterious and beautiful. I've been working that shift ever since I could remember. Elizabeth Minnick, public philosopher, feminist, educator, author, my best friend since we met in the 11th grade in 1959, my beloved partner and spouse for 44 years. The two of us read ourselves asleep around 11 p.m. Two hours later, I pop up like a slice of sourdough bread from a toaster. I'm instantly wide awake. For the next four hours, 
I read, write, think, listen to music. About five in the morning, I go back to sleep and sleep until around nine. Then sometime in the afternoon, I take a two-hour nap. I get my eight hours just in three shifts. I sometimes think of it as three days for the price of one. Art can I, Hudao, and Graveyard, wonderful names. So much of my songwriting comes from listening closely to the way everyday people talk about who they are, what they do, what they care about. These words and phrases are grits for the mill. Yeah, yeah, I know. The expression is really grist for the mill, but we're here in the South for a reason. So, for example, I wove one of these shift names into my song, Lawrence Jones, about a teenage coal miner shot to death of the picket line by a company guard during the Brookside strike by members of the United Mine Workers of America, the UMWA, with which I worked in the early 1970s. The lyrics go, the night is cold as iron. You can feel it in your bones. It settles like a shroud upon the grave of Lawrence Jones. The graveyard shift is walking from the bathhouse to the mine. There's one man dead on the Harlan County line. The great Kathy Matea did a powerfully wrenching recording of the song. You can find it up on YouTube where you can find almost anything. Looking back at my song, Lawrence Jones, from the distance of almost 50 years, I noticed for the first time ever how the word grave in the fourth line becomes graveyard in the fifth. That wasn't something I did consciously. It's just what happens when you stay up in the middle of the night, accompanied only by the night and by words and music. Well, the night is thick as silence. You can't cut it with a knife. A man lies in the hospital, draining out his life. The trucks are on the back road, in the dark the headlights shine. Cause there's one man dead on that Harlem County line. Oh, anger like poison is eating at your soul. Your thoughts are loud as gunfire, your face is hot as cold. Bitterness like buckshot explodes inside your mind. And there's one man dead on that Harlan County line. Miner's life is fragile, it could shatter just like ice. But those who bear the struggle 
contact like vinegar in wine And there's one man dead on that Harlan County line From the river bridge at High Splint to the Brookside Railroad track You can feel the long strength building that can never be turned back The dead go forward with us, not what is left behind Cause there's one man dead on that Harlan County line Where the night is cold as iron, but you can feel it in your bones It's said Shroud upon the grave of Lawrence Jones Graveyard shift is walking From the bathhouse into the mine And there's one man dead On that Harlan County line One man dead On that Harlan County line One miner dead on that Harlan That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, we sure hope you do. Like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show based out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to Ann Brown, Senior Director of Communications at the Baltimore Museum of Art. Our music today included Hardworking Woman Blues by Mississippi Matilda, Lawrence Jones by Kathy Matea, and Frying Pan Skillet Blues by Bessie Tucker. Labor History Today is a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. Labor History Today is produced by the Labor Heritage Foundation and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. You can keep up with all the latest labor arts news. Subscribe to the Labor Heritage Foundation's free weekly newsletter at laborheritage.org. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time.